Thank you, Marley and Susanna. At this time, our children ages 3 to 8 years old are dismissed to Children's Church. Okay, if you're ages 3 to 8 years old, you're dismissed to Children's Church. If you're wanting to go on down for that, the rest of you just stay here and turn to Gospel of Mark, Chapter 9. Gospel of Mark, Chapter 9. We're going to continue in our series of the Gospel of Mark. Wasn't that a blessing to hear those ladies uh, give their testimonies? I hope that it kind of whet your appetite to what the ladies' retreat is about and uh, it's first year our ladies have ever gone to that. Um, Crystal's been numerous times before, but I've never really, the church we were at, they never did give testimonies about it, so I never knew really, uh, except for what Crystal experienced, you know, really what it was about, and I was really blessed this morning. So, um, before we begin, I want you to think about this question, don't answer it out loud, but where were you on September 11, 2001? Some of you may not have been born. I don't know. Maybe some of you. Yeah, I know some of you haven't been born because Josiah hadn't been born then. So, but uh, I, I was in college, and my survey of uh, history, uh, it's a history of Israel class. It was a survey class of that, and Dr. Thurman Wisdom was my pa- uh, my teacher. I had a wise teacher. <laughs> but anyway, I remember um, being there in the class, and I could tell something was going on. And they had TVs in every um, every classroom, but they, they shared it with class. And then we had chapel right after that when the first uh, tower was hit. And so um, I think Keith reminded us, I didn't do a count, but he said 15 years, so I'm going to just trust you, brother, wherever you're at. That's right, that 15 years ago, I think that's right, um, that this uh, attack uh, happened on American soil. And so I wanted to take this special time to pray for those families. Some of them are in church today, and it's hard for them to concentrate and focus on the Lord, uh, considering the family that they've lost. Others are not sitting in church. Others may have died already in that 15 years. Others may still be alive, but they still haven't trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And so let's pray for these families this morning before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. And we understand that you reign over all things. And Lord, um, our country has forsaken you. And um, our and Lord, what a tragedy to see the effects of sin uh, here on American soil 15 years ago. And Lord, we don't want to relive that, but we do want to pray for those families. And we do want to just pray for your ministry uh, in their lives. Some of them haven't trusted your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't know of your love for them and how you want to save them from other Uh, results of sin, especially the one of eternal separation from you. And I just pray that you would work in their hearts, that your Holy Spirit would convict them of the sin in their life, their need for righteousness before you, and of the coming judgment. And Lord, that they would turn to you in their great uh, time of sorrow today. Uh, I pray for believers that had loved ones that died uh, on that tragic day. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them victory, that you would give them comfort, And, Lord, that you would give them peace that passeth all understanding. Help us, Lord, to look to you today as we study the Gospel of Mark. And may you do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. George W. Bush, on September 11, 2001, said, Night fell on a different world. 
that day. And uh, I was reading some stories about 9-11 and uh, specifically what happened in New York City. Rescue workers were working around the clock trying to dig people who might be alive through the rubble, risking their lives around the clock, going and being um, in that rubble trying to dig these people out. But it was reported in this article by, I think it's called The Guardian, uh, this publication that said that looting began right after the first fires were put out. And so while all these rescue workers were working around the clock selflessly and sacrificing maybe even their lives to rescue people and to serve them in that way, people began looting stores that were abandoned or damaged from that attack. And they one one store in particular was targeted. It was the uh, turn. It's a French word. It's uh, turno. Uh, it's a watch shop. From what I understand. And there were two men arrested one day that first week uh, of 9/11, 2001. One was a former prison officer of these two men. Uh, they were stealing watches from this watch shop. They were caught with watches worth $3,800. It's hard for me to imagine watches being that much. But also cash and merchandise in other shops were stolen as well in the weeks to come. And you think about such a tragedy and you think about such selfishness and how these people used a tragedy to look out for themselves and we can say, man, that really is so wicked. But the sad thing is, and Jesus is going to bring this up here in this section of Mark chapter 9, is Christians a lot of times are saved. People of God have been saved, but they still live life looking out for themselves. And the fact, and what Jesus is trying to get across in verses 30 through 37 that we're going to be studying today is that a true follower of Jesus Christ will have a servant's heart. Many saved people, they have ambition to come to a church and be a ruler in a church. Pastors do that. Deacons do that. Members do that. Where they have, they don't have it on their mind, they have on their mind, what can others do for me? Even visitors to a church can come and say, feed me, do for me, or I'm leaving. And it's kind of a commercial mentality in churches today. I don't think that of any of you. I hope that's not the case. But a true follower of Christ, as we've been talking what what a true follower of Jesus Christ looks like, as Jesus foretold that he, you know, he is the Messiah and his disciples believed that he was the promised king that was going to come, he enlightened them, "Hey, but I'm going to the cross." And that totally threw them out out and out of whack. And they're like, "You're what? You're going to die?" And they still can't believe it. And he says, oh, don't, don't worry about just that. I'm, if you're a true follower of me, if you're really going to follow me, you're going to walk and sacrifice and suffer just like I am. Are you willing to be a true follower of me? And we've followed that up with a couple of uh, messages on the nuances of that. But here he expands on that again. A true follower of Jesus will have a servant's heart. And the thing is, is that Jesus wants you and me as we come here to have a desire to serve Him in the church, but also our ambition should be to seek how we can do things for others, not how people can do things for me or for you. 
And so we must determine to put others first in our lives. And what are some practical helps to live a servant's, with a servant's heart? Jesus gives some of those here in this passage. I'm going to quickly highlight them for you. In chapter 9, verse 30, we pick up where we left off. And they departed from there, from thence, and that would have been Caesarea Philippi, okay, on that northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 30, and they departed from there and they passed through Galilee, which was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they've crossed the Jordan River. And they're traveling through this territory called Galilee. It's a very, it's a lot, it's a pretty big area, probably bigger than Judea. And they would not, and Jesus would not, that any man should know that he was in Galilee. Why the secrecy? Verse 31, for the reason is he taught and he taught his disciples, and he said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. First practical step to living with a servant's heart is to remember the work of Christ. To remember the mission of Christ and what he came to do. We see the problem here is that the disciples forgot that. And that's exactly what Jesus does here, is He reminds His disciples of why He truly came and what is about to take place. He is preparing them. And as we talk about having a servant's heart, that's exactly what Jesus has. He is thinking about His disciples and He is wanting to prepare them for the time of His crucifixion. The twelve have already forgotten His work again on Mount Hermon. Jesus revealed His divine glory. He showed who He truly was. That He was the Son of God to three of His disciples, Peter, James, and John. At Caesarea Philippi, we just covered this in the last sermon, that He was there and He cast a demon out of this boy that His own disciples couldn't cast out. The exorcist of Judaism couldn't cast out. And so He does this miraculous, powerful miracle And it's with the backdrop of this that Jesus gives this statement. Because they, of course, are looking to him as the powerful king that's going to start his kingdom here on earth. And so the twelve have just seen his mighty power and they're thinking, and the last thing they're thinking about is his mission and what he has said earlier about going to the cross. In Mark chapter 8, In verse 31, Jesus has already foretold his death. Let me remind you of what he said. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Okay? He he knows God's will and he is totally dedicated and surrendering, surrendered to accomplishing God's plan of salvation. This, you know, Jesus wasn't a martyr. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you and me. He was in control the whole time. He knew that he was going to be rejected by these different groups of people, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These three groups that actually represented the 70 member council of the Sanhedrin. It would have been like the Supreme Court of today. He knew he was going to stand before them so very soon, and he was going to, it was going to be a, a monkey trial where they'd have false witnesses trying to testify against him. And then he also foretold that he would suffer and that he would die, and that but that he would 
be raised again from the dead on the third day. And again, to remind you, if you weren't here when I preached that message, in the minds of the disciples of Christ, they only knew about the resurrection at the end before the kingdom of God was supposed to be ushered in. The general resurrection of all God's children. And so that's what they have in mind, is that all people are going to be resurrected, and the sheep are going to be divided from the goats, the saved God's people from the people that are not God's people. And that's the kind of mindset they have towards the resurrection. It's incomplete. And I'm so glad that God gives us understanding of His Word in spoonfuls instead of truck dump loads, you know? He doesn't just dump it down on us. And we see here in Mark chapter 9, He gives more information about what's going to happen at the cross. Something different that He didn't mention before. If you look back at our text in uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 31, he says the Son of Man is being delivered, literally, is being delivered. It's in the passive case, is being delivered into the hands of men. And they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. What's the new thing that he mentioned? He is being delivered into the hands of men. He hasn't said that yet. And so he's given a little bit more information. And he uses the present tense here. He is being, in the passive tense, being delivered over into the hands of men to be arrested. Okay, And we immediately think Judas Iscariot. But, and that may have been the case. It may have already started that early with Judas, the one who's going to betray him. But I believe, honestly, it's talking about God. The God the Father. That He... And His will is, right now, His journey to Jerusalem is beginning. And this uh, this phrase here in verse 30, um, that He passed through Galilee, this is the last time that Jesus is going to be in Galilee before the cross. And we're going to read about Capernaum. It's going to be His last time in Capernaum. He is on His way to the cross. And this is the beginning of that road to the cross. And He's preparing His disciples for what's about to happen because They've already forgotten what He came really to do. And He came to die on the cross. And He is being delivered over into the hands of men. And so Jesus is explaining further about His coming death. And this was the will of God. And the Son of God willingly plans to lay down His life. His life was never taken from Him. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost about this very thing. And just listen to this. He uses the same word, being delivered, uh, here as Jesus used. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. This is after Jesus died and was raised and ascended to heaven on high. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, um, I didn't give you the verses. Verses 22 through 24. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which we've, we've studied a lot of those through the Gospel of Mark, which God did by Him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held of it. And so we read that Peter testifies that Jesus was no martyr, that he laid down his life willingly because it was the plan of God. And it was in his plan 
of how He was going to save mankind from their sin. And the reason why, just as a quick aside, is because when Adam and Eve sinned, all their descendants after them were born with a sin nature. And so in order for forgiveness to occur without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, the Old Testament says. And so a blood sacrifice had to be made, and it had to be a human being, but it had to be a sinless sacrifice. And there has never been a sinless human being since Adam and Eve lived on this earth and they sinned against the Lord in the Garden of Eden. And so it had to be a sinless human being. And it had to be a human sacrifice. And, and also for people to be saved for years to come and even for all eternity, those who put their trust in this one, it had to be an eternal sacrifice. So it had to be the Son of God, Jesus. He was the only qualified one that could do it. And so it was in God's plan, His perfect plan, to accomplish salvation in this perfect way. But how does the work of Jesus on the cross compel us to serve others? Because we're talking about having a servant's heart, aren't we? Well, turning your Bibles to, hold your place here and turn to Philippians chapter 2. I am going to have you read this with me uh, silently as I read it out loud. But if you will turn to Philippians chapter 2, I want to read about the work of Jesus starting in verse 5. And the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, draws this connection of how the work of Jesus compels us to serve others. It begins in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was in heaven. He could have claimed all the independent, uh, all the attributes of God. He could have had all those, but he, but it says that he forsook those, or he didn't grasp them, but he suppressed them for this plan of salvation. But God made himself of no reputation and took him, the, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The likeness of men. He was not born in sinful. Okay? And, in, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, or for this reason, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This act of Jesus Christ in providing salvation basically makes it where no one is without, no one has an excuse when they stand before God one day. Because God has provided the Lamb, the sinless Lamb. He has provided Himself a Lamb in order to save us sinners from eternal separation in hell and a lake of fire. And so none of us are going to stand there and say, oh, I didn't hear or I didn't understand. No, you, everyone that's going to stand before the Lord one day unsaved will have no excuse. And they will have to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and who He said He was. And so all the naysayers and the ones who deny that Jesus lived, or even that His words are in this book, or even that He has the power to save a sinner from, from sin, they will 
fall on their knees. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why do true followers of Jesus put others first? Because Jesus put others first. He is the standard. And I don't know, just reading through that passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2, if it doesn't compel you to have that same mind in you as Jesus has, there's a problem. Either you're not saved and you haven't experienced that gift of salvation so you don't appreciate how Jesus has put you first at the cross when He died in your place, or you're like the disciples and you just don't understand. We read here, in Mark chapter 9, in verse 32, but they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask Him. Don't make the same mistake. If you're not compelled to serve others because of what Jesus did on the cross, yes, you need to examine your own relationship with the Lord. But if you are saved, maybe you just don't understand all that was involved when Jesus died on the cross. Well, don't sit there and say, well, I just don't understand. I'm not going to do anything. Get it back in the Word of God. Study what Jesus has done for you. And I guarantee you, if you give yourself to the Gospels and what Jesus has done on the cross for your sin, in the book of Romans, as it talks more about that, you will be compelled to serve the Lord and have that same uh, mindset that Jesus had. Jesus put others first. And we need to put others first as well. Remember the work of Christ, of Jesus Christ, is a practical help towards having a servant's heart. Second of all, remember the true measure of greatness. Verses 33 through 35. And Jesus came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, or they kept quiet. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Here Jesus, he trying to help these disciples realize what true greatness is. The measure of true greatness One preacher said it this way, true greatness is shown not by how many serve you, but how many you serve. That was an awesome statement. True greatness is shown not by how many serve you, but how many you serve. Jesus brings up this dispute that came up on the way to Capernaum, 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 if I can say it right. And it probably was started out by one of those three that was on the Mount Hermon when Jesus revealed His glory. I mean, you think about it. These three, they came down from Mount Hermon, probably was Mount Hermon, and they saw the glory of Jesus Christ, and this voice, the voice of God spoke to them to exalt Jesus and put Him in His right place. And then they see Jesus in this miraculous healing, casting out the devil, this demon. And so, you know, they are, they kind of feel a little special, you know, because they were part of that select group. And I pointed out when I preached that message about him on the Mount of Transfiguration, those three were probably chosen not because they were special or the closest to the Lord, but because they were the ones that were probably the uh, most likely to be distracted very easily. The sons of thunder, Peter with the foot-shaped mouth, 
uh, just real prone to speaking and acting um, uh, acting just before thinking. I'm trying to think of the right word, but you know what I mean by that. But Jesus brings this up. And uh, the disciples keep really quiet because there are, you know, it's pretty obvious that they are ashamed about the arguing that they, this argument that they had along the way. And, but Jesus takes time to teach them about true greatness because they were arguing about who was truly great. And the Gospel of Luke says that, Luke, that Jesus knew their thoughts and their intentions and what they were arguing about. Apparently Jesus was walking far enough ahead of them that he could not have heard what it said. So they're kind of freaked out, you know, a little bit that he knows what they just were arguing about. And so the measure of true greatness, Jesus explains in these verses, and I want to explain it this way, the true measure of greatness is Jesus Christ. Is The, great, the measure of true greatness in the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. Uh, as, they, as they struggled and they debated about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as He describes true greatness, He fits the bill. I mean, He is the last of all, and he, is the, he was the last of all, and He was the servant of all. You think about Jesus when He came to this earth in His first advent. He took on human flesh, and He was born not in a palace, but He was born to in poverty, and He was laid in a manger. And His life was threatened. And He was born in a lowly state. He was born, He came last of all. And as, as he says that the ones who desire to be first, he says, they shall be last of all or the lowest on the totem pole. And that's exactly how Jesus came. And then obviously Jesus came to be servant of all. This gospel is about Jesus, the servant of the Lord. And he accomplished and he served God the Father by dying on the cross and fulfilling the plan of salvation for the Godhead that, that was planned many, many years ago. And so Jesus came to be servant of all at the cross as well. And so, what is the true measure of greatness? It's the image of Jesus Christ. It's His character. It's, his, it's modeling our lives after Him. And God, God must conform you into the image of Christ. But first, you have to be like these disciples and realize, what is the standard? It's Jesus Christ. It's not the pastor. It's not whatever legalistic rules the church may put on you or another Christian may put on you. It's Jesus Christ. And so we need to dig into the Gospels of, of the Bible and realize who Jesus is and, and how He lived and uh, commit ourselves and be determined to uh, imitate Him. And as we get in the Word of God, I think I shared this last week in, from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Verse 18, but as you get into the Word of God, the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and change you from glory to glory into the image of Christ. But you have to immerse yourself in the Word of God. And then second of all, not only realize that Jesus is the standard for greatness, but then also ask God to make you a servant like Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of times we bypass this step. We say, oh yeah, I can just fill my head with all this knowledge, you know. I can think about all that Jesus did and I can just have this huge head of all that I know about Jesus Christ. 
But it makes a lick, it makes no lick of sense to have it all in your head and you never are, you never have the power to put it into use. And that power comes through the Spirit of God. And we need to be asking the Lord, make me a servant like you, dear Lord. That he would, that we would put him and others first each day and that we would live humble and be willing to serve others. And then in verses 36 and 37, not only remember the work of Christ, what He did on the cross, that will compel you to serve others. You still with me? And then also remember the true measure of greatness, and that will sure humble you. And then also remember the one you are serving, and that will just energize you, and it will unleash you to serving whoever may come your way. Verse 36, And Jesus took a child... Now, I didn't mention this. The house there in Capernaum, or Capernaum, I keep mispronouncing that, was probably Peter's. Peter had a house there. We know that for sure from this gospel. Because when Jesus first preached in the synagogue of uh, Capernaum, he went to Peter's house and he healed his mother-in-law. Okay, And so he healed Peter's mother-in-law. So we know he has a house there, and that's probably Peter's house. And this child is probably Peter's child. With that understood, he took a child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms or lifted him up, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. He uses a child as an illustration. And by the way, Jesus has a special heart for children and for children's ministry. That's why I'm so glad that we do Awana Bible Clubs. It's because we are reaching children from our community and God, and God loves them. And He wants them to be His children. But Jesus challenges you and me and also His disciples here to be willing to serve the lowliest people that are among you, the least among you, that you would be willing to serve them. Uh, children are the neediest people that are among us. You know, they don't have legal rights here in the United States and in ancient times they were more seen as property they were supposed to be seen not heard and so they had no voice they were you know the slave would eventually uh the child would eventually inherit the property and the uh the belongings of the father but pretty much they were on the same plane as the servant other than that okay and so children were very needy and we, we can relate to that, can't we? Remember when your child was taken home for the first day? Or maybe that first night in the hospital? And how you kind of hoped to get a good night's sleep, mothers, and you didn't? Because your baby wanted you all night long and it, and it didn't stop and it hasn't stopped. And, you know, our children are needy from when they're born, even sometimes into their adulthood, unfortunately, that they're just needed. They come back to mom and dad to ask for help, don't they? And so children here kind of typify certain people in our society that are needy. Let me explain that. Uh, first of all, children are a lot of times not able to pay back their parents. You know, you might go to Five Star. Some of you Sunday school teachers got certificates today and you might go to Five Star and, you know, that certificate is probably going to pay for your meal, maybe not for your children. But if you paid for their lunch, would your children be able to pay you back for lunch today? No. But why do you pay for their lunch? Because you love them, right? You're trying to serve them. 
You're not making them an idol. They're not a God in your life, but you love them and you're trying to serve them. And see, there's people in this society that come to our church that we're going to run into and we're going to meet them and we're like, well, I'm not sure if I want to spend the time of day on them. They'll never pay me back for what I did for them. Don't we have that mentality sometimes? And that's exactly how a child is as well. But Jesus says, you know what? You need to serve them whether they're going to pay you back or not. That's not why you serve them in the first place. You get me? And then second of all, with children, many times we serve them and then they're unwilling to serve us. And they're unthankful. And they kick us in the teeth. Are you willing to serve people that are not going to appreciate you serving them? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? If you're a servant of all, you will serve them. Whether they pay you back or whether they appreciate it. And then the third uh, description of children and how this illustration is used is sometimes children will break your heart, won't they? You invest your life in them. You love them. You sacrifice for them. And they don't serve you in return. They can't pay you back. And then they disappoint you. And they break your heart. And Jesus says, these are the people that I'm calling you to serve. Are you willing to be a servant of all? Are you willing to receive them as little children? He says, remember, as you serve these kind of people in your community and among you, you're really serving God. If you look at verse 37, whosoever shall receive one of such children... And my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So he's saying, hey, when you serve that person that's never going to be able to pay you back, that maybe doesn't isn't thankful for what you did, or even mistreats you, maybe an enemy of yours, when you serve them, remember, you're not serving them. You're serving me. And when you're serving me, you're serving God the Father. And you know what? When you remember who you truly are serving, it will compel you to serve people as you should. A true disciple of Christ has a servant's heart. And what are some practical helps for uh, serving the Lord with a servant's heart? Is first of all, remember the work of Christ. And it will compel you to serve others. Remember the true measure of greatness. It's not about how many people serve you, but it's how many people you serve is what God will reward in the end. And then also remember the one you are serving. Jesus calls you to serve the least among us. But you must determine to put others first for Jesus' sake. Let's have every head bowed and eyes closed. It's such a temptation as Christians to get comfortable in the church and view the church as a organization instead of an organism that Jesus created. The church exists to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, to evangelize, but also to equip you to serve the Lord, but also to edify one another, but that we would exalt the Lord Jesus. And one way to do that is to go out and serve others in the church as well as outside these four walls. How about you, as the pianist plays, how have you been serving the Lord Jesus Christ? Can I ask you, when is the last time that you maybe 
sacrificed something for someone else in this church, or if you come with the attitude even today and say, I want my will to be done. That's blasphemy. The Lord says He wants His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And His will is for you to become a servant of all just like Him. Remember His cross. Remember His standard of greatness. And remember who you truly are serving. Have you been looking out for yourself? If so, you get alone with the Lord. You need to get on your knees. Maybe there in your pew. Just talk to the Lord and say, Lord, please forgive me for being so selfish. For looking out for myself. For wanting my own agenda. And Lord, give me a servant's heart. Make me a servant like You, dear Lord. Maybe you haven't accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. He came and He died on the cross to serve you and to give you and offer you a gift of eternal life. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus as your personal Savior, and you want to be saved today, I encourage you to respond during this time as we Christians are talking with the Lord. If you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I encourage you to come forward. We can have a lady talk to you if you're a lady, a man talk to you if you're a man. We want to show you how to be saved from God's Word what Jesus has done on the cross for you. You respond to the Lord as He's worked in your heart.